Now that a serious effort at postal service reform seems to be making traction in Congress, business groups are lining up to support it, but with some caveats. We get one view from the executive director of the Coalition for a 21st Century Postal Service, or C21, Art Sackler. Mr. Sackler, good to have you on. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And tell us just a little bit about the coalition. Are members periodical class mailers, business class mailers, or all of the above? The coalition is comprised of mailers, shippers, and their suppliers. It's a broad cross-section of the industry that generated about a trillion six in revenues and supported 7.3 million jobs in 2019. We're mailers of every kind, and we do indeed include newspapers as part of it. And we are also shippers that include some of the big e-commerce shippers and others. And we're the paper industry, the printing industry, the technology folks who underlie it. And it's important to understand that we have a very broad array of small businesses. We're mostly small businesses through the trade associations, which are members of our group. And we also include businesses that go all the way up to the very largest. Well, as someone who spent a long time in the periodical controlled circulation business, I know that many of those types of outfits do live or die by what Postal Service decides to charge them. And so let's begin with what the coalition likes about the Postal Service reform, the main components, which seems to be the ending of the prepayment of retiree health benefits. Well, to be frank, we like everything that's in the bill. It's a bill that we support, and it's a bill that if it had been introduced on November 29th of last year or earlier, we would have been positively enthused about it. It achieves goals that we've wanted to achieve for 10 years. And chief among them is the one you mentioned. It's the repeal of this onerous obligation to pre-fund the retiree health benefits of postal annuitants. And it has caused a huge proportion of the losses the Postal Service has experienced over the past 15 years. There are other pieces in the bill that we like as well. So the bill is a good bill, but falls short in a couple of key areas. Is there the danger, though, that if you don't prepay them now, there must have been some reason that Congress instituted that a while ago, that they'll just simply have to pay it on the other end when the annuitants become retirees? Well, they do. And that is the common practice in business. It was the practice of the Postal Service up until the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act of 2006, which required the prefunding. It was a well-intended effort, actually, to do what you just encapsulated in a couple of short words, that as the users of the Postal Service shrink. And that was what the presumption was in 2006. There'd be fewer folks to businesses, individuals to carry the costs of retiree health as the system grew older. But they mandated a prefunding that stretched 75 years into the future. They were protecting the unborn. And what happened, unfortunately, very coincidentally, was three months after George Bush signed the bill into law in December of 2006, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone. 
and social media was starting to come online. And the result was that a lot of business started diverting from paper into digital. And so the Postal Service got caught with that. It got exacerbated by the Great Recession. Long and short, Postal Service couldn't prepay after 2011. They just didn't have the money, and they had to choose between pre-funding the retiree health benefits and delivering the mail. So there wasn't a real choice there. We're speaking with Art Sackler. He's executive director of the Coalition for a 21st Century Postal Service and a partner at the law firm Sackler, Brinkman & Hughes. And the other thing that occurred at that time was beginning the rise of Amazon. And now the Postal Service has participated in this explosion of parcel delivery and packages. In fact, they are subcontractors to some of the other big delivery companies. But that doesn't seem to have offset the revenues that they lost from first class. Is that pretty much a good way to look at it? They haven't offset enough. If you take last year as an example, okay, packages spiked during the pandemic and they're still very high, which is a good thing for the Postal Service. And mail was off 20%, 22%. It plunged during the pandemic. And yet for the fiscal year of 2020, packages brought in $28 billion bucks. $7 billion more than they ever had before, which was the previous year, and mail was still at $37 billion. So they haven't been able to really replace mail revenues with packages. And of course, it goes beyond just the revenues and what's necessary to serve business, what's necessary to serve the public. Yes, and there is a reform plan that I think predated Louis DeJoy, the Postmaster General, but he's been promulgating it, and that has to do with a lot of the infrastructure of the Postal Service, delivery times, and also of note to your members, and I guess to anyone else who mails, is rates. And you are looking for a lot of savings, and Postal Service solvency is the C21 coalition looking for zero rate increases, or you want to just limit rate increases? We already are subject to an annual inflation increase from the Postal Service. In current law, it's limited to, or it was limited to, CPIU, which is CPI urban. And that's meant that every single year there's been increases of, you know, a small percentage, but much more easy to handle for customers who can plan ahead, plan on an inflation increase, and so forth. And it also, Congress had in mind back in 2006 when it went to a rate index, that capping what the Postal Service could get in any given year would do two important things. One, it would lend certainty and predictability to the customers of the Postal Service. They could predict how much the rates were going to go up instead of under the previous regime get spikes and different increases that came every few years. It just was not very predictable. So they got that. But very importantly, Congress recognized that having a cap on revenues would force the Postal Service to become more economical. And indeed, it did. They cut out enough costs, they used to say, to save themselves about $15 billion a year. And that stands to logic. If the system is losing money, they can't just go 
effectively print money by raising rates by whatever they need. What is the industry's concern over possible postal rate hikes? Well, the Postal Service is going to ask for increases that are triple to quadruple inflation. And as I mentioned before, no one who has been using the Postal Service in the past 15 years has experienced anything beyond inflation. What the industry participants are telling us is that this increase will be crushing and that the fact that the increases that we're going to see are going to be compounded is really going to accelerate males leaving the system. For small businesses, the males of Lifeline, for nonprofits, for magazines, for newspapers, and yet they're not going to be able to afford these rates and are going to have to reconsider their participation in the mail. And in some instances, some businesses may be pushed right out of business. And meanwhile, the big boys, you know, banks, utilities, retail, those folks who are not going to be obviously damaged in business from this are all reconsidering how much they want to stay in paper and how much they want to or how fast they want to move to digital. And this is going to push it all out. And finally, what's your sense of their competitive position versus FedEx, UPS? Right now, there's no door-to-door, six-day anything for the home, the kind of constitutional mandate of the Postal Service. But really, the big competition is in packages and parcels. Can they remain competitive if they can't control their pricing the way the other commercial carriers can? Well, they actually can. The Postal Service is divided into two distinct areas. One is called market dominant. That's all the old monopoly classes, first class, marketing mail, periodicals, all of that. And then on the other side are businesses or operations that have direct competition in delivering either hard copy or packages in particular. And that's where the postal parcel business, if you will, lies. It's completely competitive. And on the competitive side, the Postal Service can set any rate it wants as long as that rate covers the cost of delivery and contributes to the institutional costs or the overhead of the Postal Service by a minimum set by the Postal Regulatory Commission. And the Postal Service has proved to be very competitive. The amount of increase in packages over the last 10 years has been astounding. And in particular, these last few years and last year, most of all, the increase has been really very impressive to spectacular, which is what it was last year. Art Sackler is executive director of the Coalition for a 21st Century Postal Service, or C21, and a partner at the law firm Sackler, Brinkman & Hughes. Thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Still to come, contractors have had the weekend to digest this big budget request. Here's what some of them say. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff 
to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up 
again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the 
cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week, so patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.